Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on our latest online selections of important peer-reviewed research and reviews for Part 2 of our May-June 2020 issue. We also feature a new online series of e-reports, as well as a new CME activity from cmeinstitute.com, where you can participate and earn free CME credit. Let's get started. Several therapeutic options exist for treating obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, including antidepressants, antipsychotics, and cognitive behavioral therapy alone or in combination. However, some patients are refractory to all of these treatments. For these patients, deep brain stimulation, or DBS, is an option, despite uncertainty regarding the best stimulation target in the brain. The efficacy of DBS for refractory OCD has been shown in several studies and was confirmed in two meta-analyses dating back to 2014. These analyses showed a decrease in OCD symptoms with DBS, but they did not address effects on mood or differences in efficacy depending on the stimulation target. In a CME offering for this issue, researchers in Portugal addressed these questions by conducting a meta-analysis that included 39 observational studies and 8 randomized controlled trials. In the trials, mean decreases of 7.8 points on the Yale-Brown obsessive-compulsive scale and 7.3 points on the Hamilton Depression rating scale were observed with DBS. When the authors analyzed all the data, the difference in Yale-Brown score almost doubled to 15 points, with the number needed to treat of 3. Different targets were not associated with differences in efficacy. The most frequent adverse events were hypomania and other psychiatric events, parathesia, headaches, and sensations with extension leads or stimulation. The authors conclude that DBS can significantly decrease obsessive-compulsive and depressive symptoms in refractory OCD and that most adverse events seem to be limited to the perioperative time. Visit us at psychiatrist.com where you can read this article in its entirety and earn CME credit. Many women experience depression or anxiety around pregnancy. Antidepressants are a primary treatment option for these illnesses. However, exposure to antidepressants during pregnancy may have consequences for the baby, but the findings are mixed. Maternal illness itself, which is closely linked to antidepressant use, also poses risk for both the mother and baby. And unfortunately, it is difficult to untangle the effects of antidepressant exposure from the effects of the underlying maternal illness and related factors such as stress and diet. In this systematic review, the authors examined findings on long-term outcomes after exposure to antidepressants during pregnancy to determine the effects of antidepressant exposure from other factors such as maternal illness. All relevant articles written in English and published before November 2018 were reviewed. The findings showed a link between exposure to antidepressants during pregnancy and risk for worse long-term child outcome. 
However, this link seemed mostly to result from other factors, including underlying maternal illness. Taking into account these other factors, the only outcomes still linked to antidepressant exposure during pregnancy were a higher body mass index and an increased risk for mood disorders in teenagers, though not enough research exists to draw firm conclusions at this point. Mothers must therefore weigh the risk of medication against the risk of illness. Fortunately, alternative non-medical treatment options exist. Both cognitive behavioral therapy and interpersonal therapy can help women with depression and anxiety during pregnancy. Ultimately, a woman and her provider should make informed treatment decisions based on the woman's illness, experience, and personal preference. Long-acting injectable antipsychotics, or LAIs, are widely thought to be underused for schizophrenia treatment. Among the barriers to treatment is a dearth of information on starting patients on LAI monotherapy during acute inpatient hospitalization and transitioning them to outpatient care. In this Alchemy-sponsored study, which is freely available online, patients were started on the two-month injection interval 1,064 milligrams of the LAI antipsychotic aripiprazole liroxyl in the hospital using a one-day initiation regimen developed as an alternative to using 21-day initiation with oral aripiprazole. The study anchored the aripiprazole liroxyl group by randomizing patients to double-blind treatment with paliperidone palmitate, another LAI that can be started without oral supplementation. After starting their LAI, patients were discharged on either blinded aripiprazole liroxyl 1,064 mg every eight weeks, alternating with placebo injections, or paliperidone palmitate 156 mg every four weeks. Aripiprazole liroxyl patients had mean positive and negative syndrome scale or PAN score reductions from baseline of 17.4 points at 4 weeks and 23.3 points at 25 weeks. Safety evaluations did not show any new safety concerns for aripiprazole liroxyl or for using the one-day initiation regimen. Mean PAN score reductions in the paliperidone palmitate arm were 20.1 points at 4 weeks and 21.7 points at 25 weeks from baseline, and safety was consistent with the prescribing information. This study is one of the first to examine patients started on an LAI in the hospital and followed during and after the transition to outpatient care. The results should provide useful information for clinicians considering risks and benefits of starting acutely ill patients on LAIs in the hospital. Patients with major depressive disorder, or MDD, and active suicidal ideation with intent represent a particularly ill subpopulation. They are usually hospitalized to protect them from self-harm. However, hospitalization, if accessible and acceptable, is temporary. These patients are treated with standard oral antidepressant therapy, and this treatment may take four to six weeks to be fully effective. Therefore, there is an unmet need for new therapies that can rapidly bridge the gap 
until antidepressants take effect. In this Phase three global study, sponsored by Janssen and freely available online, researchers evaluated a sketamine nasal spray for the rapid reduction of depressive symptoms in acutely ill MDD patients. These patients presented to the emergency room and inpatient unit due to their depression with active suicidal ideation and intent. Most had severe depression and a history of suicide attempt. They were treated with 84 milligram esketamine nasal spray or placebo twice weekly for four weeks. Standard of care antidepressant therapy was also initiated or optimized. Patients were initially hospitalized for a recommended five days. 24 hours after the first dose, patients receiving esketamine had a statistically significant and clinically meaningful reduction in depressive symptoms compared to placebo, as measured by the Montgomery-Asberg Depression Rating Scale. Suicidality was improved in both treatment groups, though the treatment difference was not statistically significant. Patients continued improving during the four-week treatment. The most common side effects in the esketamine group were dizziness, disassociation, headache, nausea, and somnolence. The authors conclude that these findings demonstrate the rapid and robust efficacy of esketamine nasal spray in reducing symptoms in severely ill patients with MDD who have active suicidal ideation with intent. Antipsychotic medications are widely prescribed. However, clinicians' efforts to improve treatment response and minimize side effects are often unsuccessful. The measurement of blood antipsychotic levels, also known as therapeutic drug monitoring or TDM, is a well-known tool for clinicians, although its implementation in clinical practice has perhaps never achieved its potential and may have even decreased in recent years. Despite its limitations and the barriers to its use in many clinical settings, TDM remains one of the few personalized medicine tools in psychopharmacotherapy given its focus on individual patient characteristics and data. In a CME offering for this issue, a recent consensus statement summarizes what is known about TDM in terms of antipsychotic treatment. This statement represents a joint effort of the American Society of Clinical Psychopharmacology and the German Association of Neuropsychopharmacology and Pharmacopsychiatry. The author's aim was to encourage clinicians to use TDM in routine clinical practice with the ultimate goal of enhancing safety and treatment response. The authors agreed that the potential of TDM as a valuable tool in everyday clinical practice requires a clear set of questions within the temporal frame and clinical context, as well as interpretation by a knowledgeable practitioner. Clinicians need to keep in mind that TDM is not recommended to the same extent for all antipsychotics. The consensus statement provides basic principles outlining when to acquire and how to interpret blood antipsychotic levels in a way that best informs clinical decision-making. Visit us at psychiatrist.com where you can read this article in its entirety and earn CME credit. Japan has achieved the lowest maternal mortality rate in the world. 
Many factors are associated with this low mortality, such as good access to hospitals, the popularization of clinical guidelines, and the dedication of healthcare providers. However, recently, suicide has been revealed as a leading cause of death among pregnant and postpartum women in Japan. Little information has been reported on suicide attempts among these women. With support from the Japanese government, the authors conducted a nationwide retrospective cohort study using an acute care inpatient database in Japan. They identified all pregnant and postpartum women who had psychoneurological disorders and were admitted to participating hospitals from January 2016 to March 2018. Among the 3,286 eligible patients, 3,026 were pregnant and 260 were postpartum. Of these patients, 22 pregnant women and 16 postpartum women had attempted suicide. Compared with pregnant women, postpartum patients who had attempted suicide were more likely to have depressive disorder and to use more lethal suicide attempt methods. Three postpartum patients died during hospitalization, each of whom was transported to the hospital after an attempt by hanging. And presented with deep coma at admission. To the author's best knowledge, this study is the first to explore the characteristics of suicide attempts among perinatal women with psychoneurological disorders in Japan. Although this study had several limitations, its findings emphasize that the postpartum period is an important time to monitor and support women to prevent suicide attempts using violent measures. Despite the variety of available antidepressant treatments, many patients with major depressive disorder do not respond adequately to these medications. These patients may struggle with residual symptoms and reduce quality of life. Would you know how to recognize inadequate response and how would you proceed with treatment? Learn from the experts in a new online e-report series supported by Otsuka and Lundbeck. To read these e-reports, please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Who should monitor medication adherence in patients with schizophrenia? How do you implement collaborative patient-centered care? What factors comprise the health belief model? What pharmacologic strategies and psychosocial interventions can help patients improve adherence? Dr. John Lariello shares his expertise in this CME brief report, supported by Alchemies, Otsuka, and Lundbeck. Visit us at cmainstitute.com to learn more about options for treatment and earn free CME credit. In a recent installment of his clinical and practical psychopharmacology column, which is freely available online. Dr. Andrade takes a look at the role of genetics in outcomes of studies on antidepressant use during pregnancy. He discusses recent findings suggesting that depression in a pregnant woman may predispose to neurodevelopmental disorders in offspring through shared genes and not through antidepressant use. Another installment of his column considers the observed association between ondansetron use during pregnancy and major congenital malformations. Does confounding by indication explain the findings? 
And do the benefits conveyed by this medication outweigh the risks? Dr. Andrade takes a closer look at these questions. In closing, be sure to visit us online at psychiatrist.com to view the newest online offerings from Part 2 of the May-June 2020 issue and at cmeinstitute.com to explore interactive activities and earn free CME credit. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.